Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 34th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. We're back in time. Here we are. Back in time from 1908. Well, where did we find ourselves last week? I think 2007. 2007 is where we were last time. And we're all the way back in 1961, the year of the 34th Academy Awards. And it's a very different scene from where we last were. This is by quite a bit the earliest year we've done so far. Yeah, 1961, very different year in film, but also very different year in the world. So I think it's worth doing our usual overview of what was happening in the world that would have affected how people were seeing these movies. Yeah, it's funny because we, like we said, we just did 2007. And when we put together our historical view for that, we didn't have too much, which maybe is a symptom of we're not that far removed from 2007. But also the 60s were bananas. There was a lot going on. It's a almost brand new decade. Anything could have happened, right? The world was still their oyster. And, sure. and they did everything in this decade. 1961 is the year that JFK is sworn into office as the president. And also the year of the Bay of Pigs. That scandal, that early in his presidency, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. Though I guess it makes sense when there's like a new president, other world powers are sort of pressing their luck. But the, also the construction of the Berlin Wall began that year. So all sorts of Cold War happenings. Also in 1961, American involvement in the Vietnam War officially begins. So both the initial non-soldier folks arrived in Vietnam, but also the first American helicopters arrive in Saigon with 400 U.S. troops. So we're officially in Ooh, Vietnam now. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. It could go any which way. In more fun Cold War news fun cold war news is not a thing you hear a lot it's true the space race is picking up yuri gagarin becomes the first human in space and then alan shepard becomes the first american in space later that year so yes what really mattered to americans also the 23rd amendment was ratified allowing dc residents to vote in presidential elections so if you think dc residents don't have proper representation now imagine being a dc resident prior to 1961 Oh, wow. Wild. Yes. In in early presidential news, Barack Obama is born in 1961. In Hawaii. In Hawaii. Very much America. Very much America. And then we didn't want to leave you with, with no fun news. So there is a little bit of fun news. In 1961, the first Six Flags opens in Arlington, Texas. Probably not the location I would want to go to. Sounds hot. But uh, more Six Flags were coming. And also, big news. Ken is introduced. That's right. Barbie gets a boyfriend. Important (laughs) stuff in the doll community. Don't say the doll community. (laughs) Never say the doll community. So that's 1961. I think the main takeaway is politically, oh boy. Yes. And it was only going to become more oh boy over the course of the next decade. It's true. So the films, the films of 1961, let's do our normal run through of what was nominated and what these things are, because I think people will know at least one of them quite well, but maybe not the others. That's true. In alphabetical order, as we always take it, uh, the first nominee is Fanny, 
Uh, Fanny is a romance set in early 20th century Marseille. The film stars Leslie Caron, Horts, Buckholtz, Maurice Chevalier, and he's French. I'm going to say his name is Charles Boyer. <laughs> nice. It was directed by Joshua Logan, written by Julius J. Epstein. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, and it won zero. Always a want one. Next alphabetically is The Guns of Navarone, a war film about a crack team of operatives who have to blow up the guns of Navarone to rescue maroon soldiers during World War II. It stars Gregory Peck, David Niven, and Anthony Quinn, directed by J. Lee Thompson, written by Carl Foreman, nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it won one for Best Special Effects. Okay, the next film is The Hustler, which is a drama about a pool hustler who has to learn what character means. It stars Paul Newman, Piper Laurie, George C. Scott, and Jackie Gleason. It was directed by Robert Rawson, written by Sidney Carroll and Robert Rawson, nominated for nine and won two Best Art Direction, Black and White, and Best Cinematography, Black and White. The fourth film, Judgment at Nuremberg, is a historical drama about the Nuremberg Trials. It stars Spencer Tracy, Maximilian Schell, Marlena Dietrich, and Judy Garland, among others, a large ensemble. Directed by Stanley Kramer, written by Abby Mann, nominated for 11 Academy Awards, and it won two Best Actor for Maximilian Schell and Best Screenplay, based on material from another medium, as we now call the adapted screenplay, for Abby Mann. Uh, and then finally, we have West Side Story, which is a musical adaptation of Romeo and Juliet set in 1960s New York City. It stars Nellie Wood, Richard Boehmer, and Rita Moreno. It was directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. Written by Ernst Lehman, and music and lyrics by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. It was nominated for 11, and it won 10. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, George Chakiris. Best Supporting Actress, Rita Moreno. Best Art Direction, Color. Best Cinematography, Color. Best Costume Design, Color. Best Film Editing, Best Scoring of a Musical Picture, and Best Sound. Wow, wow, wee wow. Indeed. <laughs> Way to go, West Side Story. Also, I'm fascinated whenever we get into older eras of Academy Awards to hear how the categories differed and to hear that they won all of these art direction and cinematography awards for color. Yes. Prior to looking at this year, I did not realize there was a period in history where they broke out. Black I mean, when you think about it, I feel like it makes sense. Absolutely. They're kind of different disciplines. And also, if you're dealing with like about half black and white and half color it makes sense these days it would be pretty insane yeah there's not enough black and white film but you know what it might encourage people to make black and white films that's true which would be cool it would be cool but i don't know that it's worth inventing a bunch of categories i don't for. think they're gonna do it i don't think that's the way to get butts in the seats either which is what of course the oscars is trying they, to do they are always sort of moving in the like popular how do we get eyeballs on our broadcast direction and i don't think black and white films it's the way to do that. Yeah, but still neat. Still neat. Let's talk about the highest grossing movies of the year, because that always puts a little bit of context on our film yes. selection. The The number one highest grossing movie of the year, you may have heard of it, was West Side Story. So a big hit at the Academy and also a big hit with audiences. Mm -hmm. Number two was The Guns of Navarone, also nominated. Three was Elsie or The Parent Trap, not the Lindsay Lohan one, everyone. No. And five, The Absent-Minded Professor. A couple of things for kids. Kids' movies always do pretty well. They do. Kids love the theater. Kids love the theater. 
And that's what they call it. Yes. We also like to talk about if there's anything that we don't capture in the overview of the films that were nominated that's particularly notable. And we do have a a notable performance this year. Yes. Italian actress Sophia Loren was the first actor to be nominated for and win uh, an acting Oscar for a foreign language film role. So this was the film Two Women by Vittorio De Sica. It was the first of her two nominations, but the only one that she won for. Very cool, Sophia Loren. All right, so it's time to get into it. It's time to discuss what won and and how we feel about it and the way that we do, which is would we have been mad about it? But first, what won was West Side Story. And what was the general consensus at the time about that win? Well, I feel like from the things we just told you, you can tell it was a pretty universally liked movie. The highest grossing and also winning 10 of 11 Academy Awards that it was nominated for. I think it was probably, I I haven't checked the betting odds, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that everybody knew it was going to win Best Picture before they even aired the the award. I think it is safe to say you win that many awards, you're number one at the box office. You're not coming into this Academy Awards as the underdog. Correct. Then we move on to historical consensus today. And I would say... Probably not a lot of minds have changed that much about it. West Side Story is the only nominee from this list that is on the AFI top 100 films of all time that they still desperately need to update. Who do we write letters to, AFI? Uh, (laughs) And is obviously still considered one of the greatest movie musicals of all time. Yeah, it's iconic at this point. So are we mad about it having one? I'm not. No, I don't. I can't. I can't say that. (laughs) Pretty uncontroversial win, I think. So let's run through our other nominees and whether or not we would have been mad about them. I will ask you in alphabetical order, as we always Mm -hmm. do, would you have been mad about Fanny? Yes. You? Yes. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) Would you have been mad about the guns of Navarone? Yes. Yeah, me too. Would you have been mad about the Hustler? Yes. Same. I wondered what you were going to say about that. Mm-hmm. Can't wait for this conversation. And would you have been mad about Judgment at Nuremberg? No. Same. Oh, my oh, God. We're in complete it. agreement. We did it. Oh, this is going to be a friendly uh, episode of, of our Maybe podcast. yet to have a podcast where we get into a huge fight. I, I can't wait. Well, I mean, it's not really in our nature to get into a huge fight, but I think we've been in a podcast where we have disagreed That's more true. than this. I can't wait for our first episode where we get in a huge fight. That's going to be a milestone for our relationship. (laughs) I can't believe you feel that way about Fanny. (laughs) I was really hoping for you to come in and be a huge Fanny fan. So let's, I guess, get our our double yeses, the ones we both would have been mad about, more quickly out of the way. Do our, our brief thoughts about them. So... Let's start with Fanny, and we're not going to make the mistake we usually make where we don't say what these movies are about before we talk okay. about them. <laughs> so, so give me a brief rundown of what Fanny is. Okay, I'm going to start with some backstory because I feel like this is important. Fanny is an adaptation of an adaptation. So the story of Fanny starts off as what's called the Marseille Trilogy, which is uh, all the brainchild of this guy, Peñol. And he writes two plays, which are later adapted into a movie, and then he finishes off the trilogy with a film. So it wasn't a play that got adapted. It was just a film. These three films are then adapted into a stage musical, which is then adapted without the music into this film. It is the story of a a young couple, Marius and Fanny. They live in Marseille. Marius longs to sail the sea and they have one night of passion. 
He ends up leaving to go sail the seas. It turns out she's pregnant at the time. That's still, you know, a horrible shame for her to be pregnant out of wedlock. So she marries an older man who's always wanted an heir. Their family has no children. They're wealthy. They desperately want this heir. And then at the end of the film, the old guy dies and the young couple gets back together and then they're a happy family. With the old guy's blessing. Yes. And now they're all rich and happy and together. So my thing with Fanny is I fully understand how this works as a French three-part story where you're really delving into the characters and the place and the ending is different. What I was reading about the last movie, Cesar, is the young boy has become an adult when he reconnects with his father. So it's different. And I'm like, yes, I get it. Mm -hmm. I also understand how it could work as a stage musical. And we may get into a little bit like the things in the film that don't work, but on stage, yeah, I could see it. There's a lot of still really broad performances in this movie, which again, oh, on stage, as hell. on stage <laughs> would play. In a musical yes. would play. In a non-musical film drama, do not play, in my opinion. And in particular, like the first 30 to 40 minutes of this are borderline unwatchable yeah the first like half an hour is so absurd and just goofy and the performances are so broad and the story is not really a story i was like is this film going to be unwatchable (laughs) am i going to make it through this movie and it does sort of i don't know if hit its stride is the right phrase It, it mellows a little bit and becomes more understandable as a narrative piece but yeah it's so goofy And I just don't understand the instinct to take the music out of it because I feel like if you leaned into like the fun of some musical pieces and you wouldn't be so concerned about the lack of character, you'd just be like along for the ride and they're singing songs and it's fun that I could understand. But what it is, is so strange. (laughs) I just don't even understand how they've ended up here. Yeah, the tone of a musical generally really needs the music because it's heightened right like yes it's a really heightened reality and yeah without it 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 doesn't particularly the first 30 minutes I think the second act works the best so that's once Marius leaves and she has to sort of figure out what to do with the child and it becomes a little bit more grounded in that drama that part's actually fairly interesting yes but the beginning and the end right totally like undercut anything that's interesting about the middle let me ask you what your what your opinion of Marius was? Because I thought he sucked. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. He's not really bringing anything to the table, to be fair. They've sort of been in love since they were children is the premise of this, right? They've never gotten mm-hmm. together. But it's one of those things where probably everyone in town thought they always would get together. And and maybe even they thought they always would get together. And so I, I guess he's just supposed to be this cute, young, little, naive sweet guy at first and you know he longs for the sea <laughs> sure, as, you <laughs> as do. we all do but then he never really in my I mean they don't give him any opportunity to be fair but it's not like he ever grows and changes as a character so the times you see him after that are he comes back for a minute he doesn't come back before the baby's born right no he comes back at the baby's first birthday so the baby has been born they've had its first birthday she's pretty happily married to this old rich guy who seems very pleasant and doesn't expect a lot from her when we first meet him he seems very creepy but once the turn happens where he just wants an heir he's a doting father and totally willing to not have a physical relationship with her yeah Here's the thing. My main thought about this as it was finishing and everything was wrapping up in this perfect bow was that there was no conflict in the movie basically at all. Other than the fact that they keep the child a secret from Marius 
mm-hmm. without which there would be no story at all. There's kind of no conflict because anytime anything happens, it immediately gets resolved. So like they kids sleep with each other. And then in the next scene, the mother finds out about it and the father finds out about it and they all have it out. There's no secrets. And then as soon as she finds out she's pregnant, she immediately tells her mother. She decides she needs to marry the rich guy, but she won't do it by deceiving him. So she immediately tells him and he's fine with it. He's jazzed. He's jazzed. And then they immediately tell Marius's father because they need to get him on board so they convince him that he'll be the child's godfather and he'll get to treat it like his own grandson which it is so he's on board too like no conflict no conflict no yes. conflict I guess at the end there's a little bit of it's sad that he ended up not being that happy with his life at sea and now he's working at a shipyard but I, he is having a guy bring him news about Fanny and the kid and then as soon as they find out that he's living nearby the child goes and finds this guy because his parents and his grandparents have always been talking about Marius but he's never met Marius so he goes and he finds him Marius takes him back home to his birthday party and as soon as that has happened the rich guy who's been pretending to be his dad is on his deathbed and is like I need to write a letter and give Fanny my blessing that she should get together with Marius as soon as I die. And that's the end. He dies. And now they're going to be rich and happy. And Marius hasn't even missed that much of his kid's childhood. <laughs> like, they're all going to be fine. But he's also taken, like, no action. Exactly. Except for leaving. But he doesn't even take that action because Fanny's the reason he leaves. He's willing to stay with her and get married. But everybody knows he's going to end up resenting her because he's that type of person. Yeah. And so she decides that she should convince him she doesn't actually love him so that he will go off to sleep. Right. And this is before she knows she's pregnant. They've just right. slept together. And so he doesn't take any actions. No. I don't. It's such a strange film. Yeah, I didn't think this movie was very good. Yeah, for me, this is the biggest head scratcher of a like, why is this on the list of nominees? I think this is the easiest spot for me to argue that should have been taken by something else. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, just, I don't get it. No, I didn't think it was great. They should have kept it a musical. I'd love to see a musical version. Okay, let's move on to our next double yes. Uh, double yes, double we yes. would have been mad. The Guns of Navarone. Yeah. So this one, again, we're going to tell you what it is first. This one is a classic of the era war movie. So we've got a group of soldiers who are all the best in the biz, and they need to go in and perform this virtually impossible task to help save some soldiers, and it involves needing to scale a cliffside of an island. It's sort of structured like a heist. Each member of the team brings a skill that they're going to need to blow up these guns. Yes. And so they have this leader who is a celebrated war figure, but also happens to be the best mountain climber in the world in his personal time. Uh, (laughs) And so they bring him in and then they bring in another guy who he is a climbing partner of his, basically, but also wants to kill him after the war is done. So that's an interesting bit of interpersonal conflict for them. And then various other soldier types. So the the whole thing is they go in, they climb the cliff side. It's really not as hard as I expected it to be, if I'm being honest. They built it up. Yeah, that was one of my initial thoughts, which was like, oh, I didn't seem that bad. The guy who's in charge does get injured while they're climbing the cliff, which is an important plot element. Yes. The issue is they're in Nazi-occupied territory. And so the question is, do we leave him behind? Because if they find him, they'll interrogate him and get information about us. 
do we kill him and put him out of his misery, even though he only has a leg injury? So what they end up doing is taking him along for a while, eventually abandoning him when they get captured by Nazis and interrogated. There's a traitor in their midst. That's a plot point. This woman has been feeding information about them to the Nazis, so that's why they can never get away from them. They do end up making it to the guns of Navarone, which are these two guns in this cliff's face cave thing that are capable of taking out the the allied ships that need to come through. And the explosives expert successfully blows them up. They lose some of their team along the way, but our, our main guys make it out. My main reaction to this was just sort of these movies aren't really for me. I feel like I've seen one. I've seen them all. It was mostly a little bit boring to me. <laughs> mm. I thought that the special effects that they did with the storm and the shipwreck was actually really cool. Yes. I thought that was very neat, especially for the era. I also enjoyed the miniatures of the guns when they were blown up. That's true. The guns were pretty fun. That Well, there's something about the blowing up the guns element that almost has like a James Bondy kind of like vibe. That was it. my thought as well. I was like, this is actually a great James Bond plot obviously he wouldn't have the whole team but he would go in and yeah the guns but i agree i was disappointed by this movie i wanted to like it more than i ended up liking it i think the team was unevenly developed and some of their like dramatic turns happened mm -hmm. really abruptly and we're just like oh, i'm giving a speech now about war and you're like yeah like you said they really set up the difficulty of the cliff climbing and that was such a small part of the actual mission that i was like Oh, I didn't realize how much was going to happen after we scaled this cliff. They made it seem like as long as you could get up the cliff, you're all good because that part's impossible. But really, it was way harder to do everything after the cliff because they yeah. were having to infiltrate this society and not get recognized by the Nazis. It was not easy. Yeah. I thought the cliff would be right under the guns, you know? <laughs> Me too. I, I was really surprised how quickly they scaled that cliff, even after their boat crashed and they lost the most of their stuff. I think it just could have been tighter. Like, I think if you remade this oh, movie yeah. today, you'd cut like 30 to 40 minutes out of it and just jazz it up. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm i a broken record on this, but I always want movies to be shorter for the most yeah. part. Anytime we come into something and it's three hours long, I'm like, I know you could cut this. I, it could be cut, people. <laughs> There's no reason it yeah. can't be. There were some twists that I enjoyed. The guy who's injured at a certain point is suicidal he's like you should just kill me you're wasting your time and so yeah. if it seems like gregory peck is telling him oh uh we, it's fine we don't have to do the mission we're going to be saved they've changed everything to make him feel better but then it turns out that he really told him that so if he's interrogated that's the information he tells them and i enjoyed that i was Which like is oh pretty ruthless cold move i did like it that. was cold yeah so that was my favorite part of the movie <laughs> A ringing endorsement. I just, I want it to be better than it is. That's my feeling with the guns. Yeah. Fair. What about our last double yes? The Hustler. I'll say, I think I expected to like it more than I did because I do love Paul Newman. I'm a little bit more on the edge on this one. We're almost actually going in order of the most yes to the least. Yes, I would have been that. I completely agree. Yeah. But okay, first, tell me what The Hustler's about. So Paul Newman is a young pool hustler. He's hungry, and he wants to best the greatest pool hustler in the land, Minnesota Fats. So he travels from California to, I don't know if they're in New York or Chicago, they're somewhere east, to to face off against yeah, Minnesota they, Fats. 
It's not New York. It's Maybe they're like in Minnesota. Minneapolis or something. Yeah. It's like St. Paul. I don't know. It's yeah. somewhere in the Midwest, I think. And so he's able to face off against him, but he wants to like thoroughly and fully defeat him. So at a certain point, he's up 18 grand, but Minnesota Fats yeah. won't say I quit. like 24 hours. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of pool. <laughs> and Minnesota Fats ends up beating him in the end. He, he doesn't know when to quit. He won't quit when he's ahead and just take the money. And so now he's destitute. He ends up leaving behind his partner, Charlie, because he's just so upset that he's lost to Minnesota Fats and all he needs to do is make enough money to challenge him again. So while that's happening, he meets this woman at a bus stop and then runs into her again shortly thereafter at a bar. And she's an alcoholic. She's got some troubles, but they end up having a relationship. And so he's for a while doing small time hustling, kind of seeing this woman. Although he has stayed in the same place where he has now notoriously had this battle with Minnesota Fat. So it's very hard to hustle anyone who knows anything about pool because they all are like, oh, you're a fast Eddie. Yeah, exactly. He ends up trying. He ends up at a smaller bar and and just humiliates the guy he's playing against and they break his thumbs, which obviously is a problem. The worst thing you can do to a pool player. And I guess he'd had a falling out with his girlfriend and he comes back to her and she nurses him back to health. There's a montage of it. He ends up having another confrontation with his former partner. And where he ends up is working with this professional gambler to try to, again, win enough money to face off against Minnesota Fats. They end up traveling to Kentucky to do this underground. Yeah, I guess there's like this culture of these rich guys who are interested in pool and like the idea of being able to play the really good pool players so he will like pay a lot to play fast eddie because he knows that he's so good yes but they get there and it turns out it's billiards which i realized watching this film i did not know what billiards was exact same story for me and so he's not doing well again he doesn't know when to quit his girlfriend begs him to just stop and come with her he refuses she ends up committing suicide, which... Oh, it's oof. bad. And he learns that, you know, life isn't all about pool and, and winning. And he ends up coming back and facing off against Minnesota Fats and standing his ground against the professional gambler and finding character. Yeah, there's this whole arc of character. Because I thought the role of the... You described him as a professional gambler, but I find that guy's role very interesting. Because mm-hmm. his whole thing is he isn't the one that plays the pool, but he gets himself involved in it. So he'll find good players and stake them so that he can make money off of their play. But also he's involved with Minnesota Fats, even though it doesn't seem like Minnesota Fats needs to be staked. So it feels there's like a mob element to it. I don't think he's in the mob per se, but it's like an organized crime gambling thing. But yeah, his whole thing is he knows Fast Eddie is talented, but that's not what makes Minnesota Fats a winner. Minnesota Fats is also talented, maybe not as talented as Fast Eddie, but the reason Minnesota Fats won is because Fast Eddie doesn't have the character that he needed to win that. And so, yeah, this guy is fascinating because he's the one giving Fast Eddie this like lesson and the moral of the story and all of that. But he also is the reason that the girlfriend kills herself like he's so mean to her he's not a good guy in any way he doesn't want the girl around he decides to hit on her after fast eddie has won this tournament and the way the the death plays out is so jarring i really did not expect that to happen because he he hits on her and she kind of rejects him but kind of not and then he goes into his 
bedroom and leaves the door open and they kind of make you think she's coming in to maybe sleep with him. He also tells her like fast Eddie's leaving you. You should go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's feeding her that sort of information. And so they make you think for a second, maybe she's going to sleep with him. But really what she does is go write a suicide note and kill herself in the bathroom. And you're like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> what, what in the world? I guess, I mean, they're really like fridging her to give Paul Newman's character yeah. motivation because you need something about his his life and his character that would change enough for him to then go be able to beat mm-hmm. Minnesota Fats. So he does finally beat in a Minnesota Fats, but the guy tries to take part of his winnings because his argument is that they had this arrangement where he's supposed to make this percentage of what Paul Newman's character makes. And Paul Newman is like, I am not paying you. You could go ahead and send people to come break my thumbs or kill me or whatever, but there's no way you're getting money from me. And the guy finally has to back down because I guess Paul Newman has character now. Right. But Paul Newman's going to leave town also. So exactly. But yeah, the the character arc is an interesting one. I I found that guy to be fascinating, to be just on the fringes of this pool world, but not really a part of it. And he's like teaching lessons. He's kind of wise, but he's also kind of a villain. I feel like he's sort of an Iago figure. Ooh, yes. Okay. That he sort of is like making the hustler better. Unlike Iago. Yeah, he's a very sinister right. character. There are a number of things I liked about this movie. I liked that as that character as a villain because I think he's really interesting. I thought Piper mm-hmm. Laurie was great as mm-hmm. his love interest. And obviously Paul Newman's very good at it also. <laughs> You're never going to not like Paul Newman. Paul Newman's great. Jackie Gleason is great as, as yeah. Minnesota Fats. Did you notice the cameo in this film or had you read about it? Uh, I don't think so. Tell me it's about a it. It's character from a previous film we've watched. Ooh. Jake LaMotta is in this film. Raging Bull himself. No way. He's the bartender in the scene after they are at the bus stop where he meets Sarah. Okay. Wow. Jake (laughs) LaMotta himself. That's fascinating. So, yeah, I think this movie has real pros. I think in another year, a weaker year, it it could have won potentially. Yeah. But, I mean, it was not a perfect movie. It's another one I think probably could have been tightened a little. The performances are good. There's stuff to think about, but also there's parts of it that didn't gel for me story-wise. I mean, there's like no score in this movie. There are huge stretches of this movie where there's just no background noise. And I found myself, as someone who doesn't really think about score a lot, being like, why is it so quiet? I think the thing I appreciated about this movie, and I think this is relative to some of the things we've now watched is we do mm-hmm. get a lot more of the female character and her psychology yes. and why she would be in this relationship with Paul Newman, who is not the greatest guy. Oh, their relationship I found very interesting, but that's yeah. part of why I also was not pleased with the suicide, suicide turn. Yeah. I did really like Jackie Gleason. He's so interestingly contained. I thought that he was a cool character because he was great at pool and he knew it, but he didn't have any... He had character. Like, even when he was losing, he had character. That's exactly what it is. Because even when he was losing to Paul Newman at the end, he was just sort of like, oh, yep, you beat me. You're the better player today. So <laughs> I was yeah. like, good for you, buddy. It didn't send him into any sort of, you know, Tailspin. spiraling mental health crisis like it did with Paul Newman. He's secure. He's secure in his personhood. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I think we've been moving in in the direction of how much I have liked them from least to most. Yeah. I feel <laughs> so. like if someone's like, should I watch Fanny? I would tell them probably not. But if someone's no. like, should I watch The Hustler? I'd be like, 
Sure. sure. You like Paul Newman? Sure. <laughs> so let's get to our first double no. Yes. Something we think could have won. I guess we'll, we'll continue in alphabetical order. Yeah. Judgment at Nuremberg. So I really liked this movie quite a lot. Yes. And I'm going to say something that could sound like a critique, but it's really not. I thought you were going to say something controversial. <laughs> we should have watched this movie in school. Yes. 100% you're correct about that. This should be a film shown to high schoolers. That might sound like a critique to some people, but you and I have a particular relationship with films we watched in high school. So <laughs> true. that doesn't mean the same thing to me. I understand it would probably take four course periods, but I think it's worth it. Yeah. Well, I mean, how many wasted course periods were there in high school? Tons. Yeah, I mean, we did watch some illuminating historical films in high school, but this would have been a great one to watch, partially because you never see any aftermath of World War II. Like, mm -hmm. you watch World War II movies, and it always ends with, we won the war, and you're like, great. Yes. Because that's the end. And it's not the end. Spoiler no. alert. So yeah, I agree with you. I very much enjoyed this movie. I'm sure people will have heard of the Nuremberg Trials. But what people might not know, and I wasn't hugely familiar with, is that there were like several sets of them. I guess that's mm -hmm. why it's plural trials. So after they had already tried and mostly executed a lot of the people most principally responsible for the military badness of World War II, they moved on to trials for other types of people. So this movie is about what they call the judges trial. So it's a trial of a bunch of different German judges who in some way involved with upholding the, the Nazi laws. And so it was fascinating because it's a sort of a part of the war that I hadn't thought a ton about and also a part that I found to be incredibly relevant to today's times. You know, we talked about in Ordinary People enjoying the structure of therapy as a way to like delve into character, right? It's a really great way to learn about yes. a character. And I love courtroom dramas because it's a really great way to delve into certain ideas. And this movie is really like, what is justice? And yeah. that's a tough question. And I think this movie gives you a lot of different perspectives. And it, it's a really complicated movie. So I watched this movie this morning and I was telling you I'm kind of upset about it because I want more time to really let it marinate in my brain because there's a lot going on. Yeah. I also had a hard time watching this movie, which is a real point of frustration. I'm furious that I can just stream Fanny. And it was such a hassle to find this movie because this is something yeah. I would want people to watch. That is Part of the tragedy of it is that not only is this movie not shown in every high school as it should be, but it's kind of like very nearly lost to history. It's incredibly hard to get your hands on it to watch. Why is it not streaming somewhere? I guess I haven't investigated who owns the rights to it, but mm -hmm. it should be everywhere. And I don't understand why it's not. But I guess I don't know how to dig into this. I'll say the, the performances are great. Spencer yes. Tracy plays the head judge of this panel of judges that are judging the judges and he's an interesting character because i guess they've gotten to a point in the nuremberg trials where nobody's really interested in being a judge anymore they've moved yes. past the part that was all glamorous and interesting and now they've had to find this sort of backwoods judge from some new england state that nobody actually knows anything about and they bring him in to be the head judge here the thing that it reminded me of which i do have an awareness of is and this is another thing that we don't really make movies about, which is reconstruction. 
after the Civil oh, 100%. War. Oh, 100%. Where Northerners just got tired. They didn't want to deal with it anymore. And that's so much of what happened in Reconstruction. And you're in the same exact place with this film where everyone is just tired of dealing with it. and Which is crazy because it's literally 1948. It's not like that they've been dealing with this for decades right? and they're all getting tired. But I think it's a very similar timeline with Reconstruction. It's like a couple years after the war and everyone's like, yeah, no, we did it. We're People done. People get tired pretty quickly. And then they also very interestingly bring in the the threat of the Soviet Union. So there's this undercurrent as well of like, we want the German people to be on our side because they're the bulwark against Bolshevism, right? So there's just, there's like a lot going on and it's all oh there's really so much going on well that's a thing i hadn't thought about but as soon as they said it in the movie became immediately obvious to me that that would be the case i guess when you're learning the events of history as you're going through the 20th century you're getting you know world war one and and the period between and you're getting great depression you're getting world war ii world war ii ends and then immediately it's korea and cold war and it flips on a dime from world war ii to cold war at least in the american retelling of it and mm-hmm. so I'm not surprised that almost immediately they were like, well, we've won this war. Germany's not our enemy anymore. We have a new enemy. And so we need as many allies as possible. And you know what allies we can find? Western Europeans. Every Western European out there is a great ally for America, including yeah. Germany, while we are still trying to prosecute the atrocities of the war that ended less than three years ago. So you do have these military types coming in and talking to the judge to be like, you can't be that mean to them because we're going to need them. We need them right now. We have a new enemy. It's time to move on. There's a lot of that vibe of like, it's time to move on, which we hear about stuff all the time and is always frustrating to me because there's just almost never any accountability for anyone in power who did something wrong ever. Yes. It's the tension right between your principles and compromise because we're in this specific situation. That's always the discussion. And also just the idea of like, for the greater good, us getting along is the greater good, right? Wouldn't it just be better if we could be friends with the Germans than be mean to them? And it's like, sometimes accountability is better for the world, right? Because then you don't immediately do the same stuff again. (laughs) Well, also the point brought up in the film, which I also really appreciated that they did this. It's both the sort of straw man argument of, well, other people were also bad. So how can you blame us? God, Which is so frustrating. But right, because as a nation, you're compromising on your principles. It becomes this question of which atrocities are you actually paying attention to? And I thought the film did a couple of interesting things around that. There's a discussion between the prosecuting attorney And I I couldn't tell how much of this scene was purposeful and how much of it wasn't, who, you know, was part of the liberation of Dachau. He was there and he saw all the concentration camps and the bodies. And they show that Mm -hmm. as well in the film, which is, you know, always very difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's it's footage probably a lot of people have seen at this point, but it is never any less horrifying. Right. But he has a conversation with the judge earlier in the film where he's talking about how Americans don't know how to be occupiers. And I was like, that's That's an interesting thing to say all we do at this point right like (laughs) he talks about how you know this land where there's all this history and and we don't know how to come in and stay and i'm like is this purposeful but there's another moment in the film too when they're talking when he's talking about the atrocities that were committed and particularly he's talking about them hanging the people in the concentration camp and the film cuts to a black soldier in Mm. the courthouse and i was like that's purposeful 
that's that's purposeful. They're definitely doing that on purpose. So there's this also, you know, this critique of America that's running through the film, which I was like, this is wonderfully complex. I I really appreciate it. It's so complex. There are so many interesting layers to it. I had an interesting experience watching it because at first I wasn't sure I was going to end up liking it as much as I did. I think I was worried. The prosecutor's really the only person in the movie whose whole thing is someone has to pay. Mm -hmm. He's the closest to witnessing the atrocities on the American side. And his whole thing is, I will take them down. This is pure evil and it must be punished. And every other character in it really has a more gray moral stance about like, there's the things on this side and things on this side and we got away. And I, I was worried at first because Spencer Tracy's arc He's an interesting character because he's not as metropolitan as everyone else. He's super excited to be in a European city and to meet Germans. Like, isn't that interesting? He's that type of person. So he's everyone he meets, he's talking to them about their experiences and he wants to get to know them. And there's like this edge to it because they all have just lived through this war. And uh, a lot of the characters you meet probably did things that are not savory. And then he has this story where he's meeting the woman who used to live in the house that he is staying in. So she is the the wife of a military guy who has been executed during mm-hmm. the course of the Nuremberg trials. She's also a German nobility. Yes. They're kind of having this flirtation. He's talking to her a lot and is definitely interested in her story. She's very much like, well, we didn't know anything about what was going on. This is her main argument. Mm-hmm. We knew nothing. My husband was in the military before the Nazis were even Nazis. He was just a loyal German patriot and he had no idea what was going on. And and he, whatever he knew was going on, like I certainly knew even less, right? Like yeah. I, I'm just this wife person and we didn't know about the concentration camps. We didn't know about the Jews. We didn't know about anything. It was, we was all just perfect innocence. <laughs> And Mm -hmm. at first, my worry is that it was like kind of working. I think that was what my concern about Spencer Tracy was. Yeah. Is because you're thinking like, is he buying this? And then I thought they did a subtle and and beautiful job over the course of the movie. He's our eyes into it since he's our main character. But he's definitely not naive. He's Mm -hmm. on to way more than you think at first. And and there's an interesting transition after the films get played in the court, right, where he's out Mm -hmm. to dinner or whatever with her again. And she's like, I heard that that prosecutor played those tapes in court today. Oh, yes. It was so uncouth. Well, yeah. She's like his favorite video. He's always playing that video. There's very much this like, you know, that's not something we talk about in, in our type of society. And it's the most overtly repulsive, I guess, that she is in mm-hmm. the in the movie. We should say this woman is played by Merlana Dietrich, and she's wonderful in the role. She's fantastic. But then there's sort of this moment of she has the same sense of like, can't we all just move on? Like, why does he keep harping about this? And you sort of pan out and see all of these other people in the bar having a great time. And you're just struck with this sense of surreality that all of this is happening so soon after the war. I've just watched these tapes of the worst thing that I've ever seen any humans do to any other humans. Mm -hmm. And here we are drinking champagne. It's a fascinating moment. So he does end up being very much the the moral center of the film by the end. But it was a fascinating journey. And all the different perspectives are so interesting. Yeah, we get to meet a lot of different characters. There's a lot of small parts that are yes. so fantastic. Well, and Maximilian Schell, who plays the defense attorney, he's great. He won mm-hmm. the Oscar for it. 
And it's a great performance and also fascinatingly nuanced, interesting perspective because he's representing all these judges. What's going on is some of the judges are just like awful Nazis. Yes. The judges also exist on a spectrum of of yes, sort of like, yeah, I did it. And it was the right thing to do to like, I had no idea what was happening. It's yeah, yes. it's an interesting set of uh, defendants also. Well, and the, the main defendant to the centerpiece of the of the defense attorney's case is this guy who before the war was known throughout the world as being this very important judge who had written all these important works about democracy. He was involved in the constitution, the democratic constitution of Germany prior to the war. You see this interesting story of how it all happened because they end up bringing in a guy who was a judge and ended up leaving when the Nazis took power. And you see how it was this sort of incremental shift because the Nazis are sort of taking over, but nobody really knows what their positions are at first, or at least don't know the extent to which they were, you know, be horrible. Then there's the argument of maybe I should be staying in my job to try to keep more horrible people from being in my position, right? That's a thing you hear a lot today. And so this guy, I guess, just sort of got swept along with it, thinking if he stayed in, it would be better than him leaving because at least he had good intentions, even though he was using those good intentions to do terrible things because all of them were signing off on people being executed for (laughs) non-crimes. Basically, all of them contributed to some sort of horrible moral evil, but they were justifying it to themselves in different ways or they were true believers. So Mm -hmm. the defense attorney is fascinating to me because his whole thing is we can't punish all of the people who could potentially help us make a better Germany. Like if we're going to Mm. to move on from this and end up having a society, this is the guy we need. This is the guy who knows about democracy and can help us. And so he thinks the ends of saving this guy justify the means of defending Nazism in court. You know, you don't really agree with the guy, but it is an interesting position. Then there's this great moment where the that judge in court basically ends up testifying that he was guilty and he knew what he was doing was wrong. Yes, he has a great speech. But that that's even more interesting because then at the end of the film, he asks Spencer Tracy to come see him in prison. And he says to him, you must know that I didn't truly know what was happening. I couldn't have known. He still wants that sort of absolution and is still yes. kind of not fully taking responsibility. And Spencer Tracy really doesn't let him off the hook. Yeah, I love what Spencer yeah. Tracy says to him. He basically says to him, like, the first time you sent an innocent man to death, it's all the same thing. It's all not justice. Exactly. It's really good through and through. <laughs> and yeah, I wish I had more time to kind of think it through prior to to hopping on the pod. But there's just some like great yeah. lines in it. There's just it's super relevant today as we feel ourselves sliding towards fascism. <laughs> yeah, we 100 percent are sliding towards fascism. And what is more apparent to me in the moment than might have been at the time is I feel like the judges at that type of figure, that's the person that I feel is most responsible. That's why this movie worked for me is because now the people that I am mad at are the people that are supposed to be standing up for democratic ideals and protecting our institutions that I don't feel like are. And so these judges are such an interesting representation of that. 
Well, and like all things, right, it, it feels like we're in the same space of people just being like, oh, it, it can't actually happen and it won't get that bad. Yes. And it's just a small thing. And it's mm-hmm. it's your classic slippery slope. But yeah, I just I'm truly upset this movie is so difficult to find. Everyone should see it. You sent me a somewhat Dubious. interesting link and it didn't work for me. And then I tried to watch it in parts on Daily Motion, and some of them was missing. I had yeah. to end up buying it. So now I own it, which I'm not upset on about. On DVD, because you yeah. can't download a stream. Oh, no, there's nowhere to download a stream. So I bought a DVD, which again, luckily I have a DVD player. And yeah, I'm not upset that I own it by any means, but I am upset that I can't just get everyone to watch this movie the other quick note i want to make about this movie which when the title cards came up i was so excited there is a super handsome baby william shatner in this movie Uh, you gotta talk about your bill shatners he's got a not a huge role but he's definitely there and he's on film a lot and i have to admit as a huge star trek the original series fan there is part of me that just has a headcanon that he is captain kirk who has been sent back in time to make sure the nuremberg trials went correctly and he's checking in with idea. Spock when he's not on camera. Spock is somewhere with a hat over his ears. <laughs> yes. I don't know if anyone has written TOS Judgment at Nuremberg fan fiction, but you could do it. Oh, yeah. It's all there for the writing. It's, yeah. it's, it's available. But yeah, we could talk, I think, ad nauseum about Judgment at Nuremberg, but we shouldn't because we have right. to talk about our final film. The actual winner, West Side Story. Yeah, the little unknown piece that nobody has seen. So neither of us were mad at West Side Story winning. Again, I guess we should say always what it is, even though this one I feel like most people will know. It is a movie based on a stage musical by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim, classics. And that musical is based on Romeo and Juliet. So, Which you also may have heard of. You may have heard of that as well by uh, old Bill Shakespeare. And the setting is now... 1960s New York and our Capulets and Montagues are now a couple of street gangs the <laughs> the sharks and the jets <laughs> yes and one of the gangs is Puerto Rican so that's an interesting element even mm-hmm. though only one of the actors in the movie is Puerto Rican which is also an- that's a more 1960s element for you I'm always intrigued by the fact that the the Puerto Rican part of it doesn't play out the way I always expect it to. I always expect the other, like the white gang to be more racist, but there's almost this sort of solidarity between the gangs against the police in a way that I am always interested in. Oh my God, that police officer is a... Yeah, there's this cop that's always like breathing down their necks because the the gangs are just trying to have a fun street fight with some snapping and some dancing and the cops are always there being like you can't be doing your street fighting i gotta keep my streets clean and all of the gang folks are like hey get out of our business cop yeah (laughs) we're just trying to organize a street fight and so i i love that element of it but yeah the premise is there are these two gangs and obviously they're not allowed to socialize with people from the other group Mm -hmm. and so there's a guy named Tony who's one of the founders of the uh, the white folks gang and he has since left he's working in a shop he has a legitimate job he's trying to make something of himself but he's still good friends with the guy who runs it and then you have young sweet Maria who is freshly in New York from Puerto Rico and is the sister yes of the guy who runs the the Puerto Rican gang 
Mm-hmm. And Maria and Tony see each other across a crowded room at a dance. They meet eyes. A time stops, basically. Like, slow motion happens around them. And they are immediately in love in the way that Romeo and Juliet are immediately in love. Yes. And then, you know, they're meeting in secret. They love each other, but they can't be together. And there's going to be an organized fight between the Sharks and the Jets. And Maria begs Tony to go stop it because she doesn't want her brother to get hurt. He shows up under the overpass where they're having the fight. And he tries to stop it, but ends up fucking it up, sort of in the same way as Romeo accidentally helping get Mercutio killed. And so things happen where the brother who runs the Puerto Rican gang gets stabbed. And then also, what's the name of the guy who runs the other one? Riff. So Bernardo, who's the head of the Puerto Rican gang, stabs Riff. And then Tony is so upset because his friend died that Tony stabs Bernardo. And so then they're both dead. Yeah, there's two dead guys. And then Tony is like, oh, shit, this is not good. What am I going to (laughs) do? So, he, you know, Maria finds out about it. She loves Tony, but he's also responsible for her brother's death. So it's very complex. And then the the Chico, the right hand man, Bernardo, Chino, I thought it was Chico. He's really mad about Bernardo being killed. So he's out on the streets yelling for Tony because he wants to murder him to get revenge. I always feel like. West Side Story is sadder than Romeo and Juliet, honestly, because Tony ends up getting killed by, is it Chico or Chino? It's Chino. I just looked it up. It's Chino. Chino. I saw you looking it up. Gets killed. It's the same thing of of Romeo and Juliet. He Mm -hmm. thinks Maria is dead because Anita, Maria's I mean, the brother's girlfriend? Yeah. They work together. They're friends. Anita's really mad about everything that's happened. She ends up telling the gang that Maria... Well, not only that. So Maria asks Anita to tell Tony that she's delayed because she has to talk to the cop. And so Anita goes to the shop where Tony works, which is run by Doc. And the whole gang is there and they assault her. Uh, It's awful. They're they're not they're not nice, dudes. It's horrifying. And that's when she's like, you know what? I was going to help you, but literally screw you all. Yeah. Maria's dead. So Tony thinks that Maria's dead. He goes out on the streets like, mm-hmm. Chino, here I am. I'm ready to die. And Chino kills him. But right after Maria shows up and he finds out Maria is still alive, as yeah. is the way of Romeo and Juliet. But in this version, she doesn't kill herself. Instead, she watches Tony die. It's really tragic. And then both gangs and the cops are all there watching after this. And she, like, shames everyone for what they have done and how they have contributed to all of this tragic ending. And then they they pick up Tony's body and carry it away, which is interesting. Yes. But both gangs come together to carry away his body. Yes, they come together and carry away his body. And it's sad. It's like even sadder because in Romeo and Juliet, they both die. And you're like, well, that's a bummer. But they're both dead. Like, it is what it is. Like, neither of them has to live with the sadness, right, of the other one being dead. And then this one, Maria just has to be like, they took away my love. But also, I love that she gives this speech and then they all are like, you're right, Maria, we have behaved horribly. (laughs) Yes. I feel like, so it's been a hot minute since I've read Romeo and Juliet. Is there a correlate to the Anita character? Because I think the thing that's also really sadder about this movie is you get to know Anita really well. And when so when Bernardo dies, you're so sad for her. I think one of the things that's a little strange about the movie is right in Romeo and Juliet, Tybalt is her cousin and in this movie he's her brother and she doesn't seem that upset that her brother's dead which i think is a little strange 
And she's not happy, but she's also not devastated. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Anita's more sad than she is. Yeah. I would say the correlate in the play is the nurse, just in the fact that that's who Juliet confides in. But it's a very different relationship to what she has with Anita because they're much closer. So you had seen this movie before. Yes. Yeah. You had not seen this movie? Correct. Yeah. What's your reaction? So, you know, I watched this movie after watching Fanny. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting double feature. And I appreciated that they were like, this is the heightened world we live in, right? It starts off with this really cool overhead shot of New York City that mm-hmm. they're kind of panning across the city. And then immediately we're getting into snaps and we're getting into oh, twirling. the snaps are glorious. And the twirling, best snaps and twirling in the business. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? Thank you, musical, for being a musical. I appreciate mm-hmm. you. I appreciate you just putting me into the world you exist in. You're not shy about it. I like that. You know, obviously, a lot of the the songs from this are just super famous Iconic. at this point. Yeah, I would say most of them. There, I had forgotten how many super famous songs there were in this musical. We talk about cultural impact as being a component of what makes the best picture. I think for this year, West Side Story, right? People are still parody the snapping and the twirling. We all know the jets. We know the sharks. We know the songs. Does it benefit from being Romeo and Juliet a story? We all know. Maybe. I don't know. But, you know, it's well shot. A lot of the dancing is super well framed. There's, There's definitely a lot of cool moments. I don't know if it's partially because I know the story of Romeo and Juliet that I was not as engrossed as when I was watching Judgment at Nuremberg. Some of the emotions didn't quite work for me because I'm like, Marie, I feel like you should be more upset that your brother has been stabbed. I don't know. Just me. I can't argue with its place in history, obviously, but I, I do think personally I preferred Judgment at Nuremberg. And I think the other thing, as much as you should think about a movie in terms of an adaptation one of the things i love most about romeo and juliet is it's so funny and this movie is not that funny and so like in romeo and juliet when mercutio dies i'm super sad because mercutio is hilarious and so when riff gets stabbed i'm just like oh no you got stabbed (laughs) i'm sad about bernardo dying because of anita i'm sad about Tony dying primarily because of Maria, but like, I don't know. I don't yeah. get us into you're the not other sad characters. About, you're definitely not sad about Riff dying. I'm not. But Riff is not, I mean, Riff is the real asshole of the piece, other than the cop. Who's, oh my God, who's everyone's sucks. enemy. I think Riff is the least likable character of this whole crew. Because, you know, he keeps trying to drag Tony back into the gang and he's trying to agitate everybody and mostly everybody else is just trying to have a good time. <laughs> And he's not, you're right, he's not nearly as funny. He's not like a comic relief character. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, de- I'm definitely not sad when, when Rift dies. I did cry at the end. I'll say that. So I was emotionally affected by I mean, it's Maria. pretty sad stuff. I, I'll say, it, I had seen it, obviously, but it had been several years at least. And I liked it more than I remembered liking it. Hmm. Like I, I feel like it has improved on second viewing. Because I didn't remember how much I loved how it was shot obviously there's a silly factor to the the snapping and there's just like a musical buy-in that you have to be willing to do to watch something like this but the choreography is so great it's shot so well the music is even better than i remembered they've introduced this new element of like kind of cultural critique that is is not Mm -hmm. a part of the original story because of the puerto rican characters so then you have the great america song about the guys 
all romanticize what it was like to live in Puerto Rico and the women all romanticize what it's like to live in America. And really, there's good and bad to each of it. But it's such a great song. And then I just I still was struck, which I didn't remember from the first time by the two gangs being like, even though the cop keeps coming to the white gang to be like, we got to get rid of these Puerto Ricans, right? The white gang is not selling them out. They're just sort of like, get out of here, cop. Yeah. And they sing a whole song about how lame the cop is. Well, that so the two songs that I liked the most in terms mm-hmm. of like their social commentary, obviously the America is great. But the other one where they're singing yeah. about the cop and really about how society pushes these juvenile delinquents from like place to place to place to place and no one will take responsibility for trying to solve the problem. I thought that was great social commentary, too. So, I, yeah, I definitely appreciated that component of the story. But yeah, it's a good time, but it's also like an interesting comparison to judgment at Nuremberg, which is obviously oh yeah i mean that's an interesting double feature (laughs) so obviously in this film too it's mostly non-puerto rican actors and mostly non-hispanic actors marino's carrying the whole thing on her freaking back and like on the one hand you could be like well it's the time and you can make that argument but we have been reading about other things that were nominated made this year. And there was a film that came out called Flower Drum Song, which was like a majority Asian cast playing these Asian characters. So it's like you, you could have well, done it. That's sort of the opposite situation because that is a movie with actual Asian cast, but not progressive yeah. views. <laughs> it's true. Very stereotypical presentations of Asian characters, whereas at least in this, you're getting a progressive view of these Puerto Rican characters, even though none of them are played by Puerto Rican. Yeah. And when we get to the other films that could have been nominated, we'll talk about the double whammy of a white person playing a person of color in a horribly stereotypical way in one of the films. So we also had the fusion of both. Yeah, we've got all kinds. (laughs) The 60s will give you whatever you're looking for. Anything else to say about West Side Story? I'm glad I saw it. Great. It was definitely a gaping hole in my movie watching. So... You know, I know we'll get a lot more musicals as we go through this process as well. We haven't had, is this our first musical? Probably is. I think so. Cool. But there are more to come. Can't wait. There are a lot more to come. All right. So before we get to uh, our final question, we should talk about if there's anything else out there that maybe should have been nominated. What about Breakfast at Tiffany's? I think I remember the film. And as I recall, I think we both kind of liked it. Well, that's one thing we've got. So anyway, <laughs> Breakfast at Tiffany's. Breakfast at Tiffany's. I would say both of us, I think, would describe our feelings towards this movie as it's fine. Yeah, I think we both kind of, I think actually kind of liked it as a little strong for me, but. <laughs> kind of liked it as a little strong. That's why I'm saying we would describe yes. it as fine. We didn't rewatch it for the podcast. I watched it no. maybe when I was in high school also at this point. So it's, yeah, been, it's been a, a minute. minute. I don't remember it super strongly. I remember being like. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, Holly Golightly, she's whimsical. She's quirky. She's the original uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. She's just like a lady who dresses up in pearls to go look in the Tiffany's window and eat a croissant. I mean, it's like there's not a lot going on in the movie. There's a romance. There's a cat named Cat. There's a... Tell me about the racist character you just set up. There's there's Mickey Rooney playing an Asian man, and it's it's bad. It's bad, guys. It's real bad. Yeah, but you know when we when we think through what else could have been nominated, it's certainly maybe second to West Side Story has had the most cultural impact. Like 
the the imagery yeah. is iconic. There's a song mm-hmm. about it, sort of. <laughs> There's a song about a relationship that's not working that talks about it. Or none of these other movies had pop songs written about them. Yeah, I mean, it's it has to be mentioned because it's definitely culturally relevant. But yeah, not that amazing of a movie. And I'm not like upset that it wasn't nominated. Based on your memory, do you think it is better than Fanny? I don't remember when I was watching it thinking like, is this even a movie? Should I be turning it off? (laughs) (laughs) To my memory, it's probably better. But I think, interestingly, I think we're about to get to a lot of options that are probably better than Breakfast at Tiffany's, but also that we have not seen. We're about to talk about a lot of movies we have not seen. So I think first worth mentioning is someone who we have not yet seen on our podcast, but will be seeing plenty of. Our beloved Sydney Poitier, who had not one, but two movies out this year. Why is the Academy overlooking that? He's always good for a nomination. One of which I think is probably a pretty easy argument to make. His adaptation of A Raisin in the Sun came out this year, and it is, as far as I could tell, pretty universally positively received. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that it's excellent. I think all the performances are probably great. It's Sydney, it's A Raisin in the Sun. Seems like an obvious choice instead of Fanny. But what I do want to talk about for a minute, and I wish I had had time to watch this, but I just discovered it, is a movie that he was in with another one of our stars from this year, Paul Newman, called mm-hmm. Paris Blues, which sounds fascinating, if not um, worthy of nomination, because I think it ended up being not what it could have been, at least according to Sidney Poitier. But it's about these two expat Americans living in Paris who are jazz musicians, who are Sidney and Paul Newman. And then these two women who are like tourists visiting Paris and end up meeting the guys and having little whirlwind romances with them. And the the end of it is that the women go back to America and relationships work out. The women are Joanne Woodward, who, as we all know, is Paul Newman's longtime wife, Mm -hmm. and Diane Carroll. So it's a white man and a black man and a white woman and a black woman. And there's a racial element to the film in that I think there's discussion of the difference of experience for Sidney Poitier's character in Paris compared to America and like part of why he wants to live there is because he doesn't experience as much racism and part of the conflict that Diane Carroll wants him to come back to America and he won't do it. But in the initial conception of the film and the way that Sidney Poitier would have wanted it to be, the couples are supposed to be interracial. So it's supposed to be that Paul Newman's character is dating Diane Carroll and Sydney is dating Joanne Woodward and so there's that interesting element to it and the studio was like I don't think America's ready <laughs> so they ended up segregating the couples and Sydney later on was like yeah they really took like the spark out of what could have been an interesting movie oh. so I, I just think the potential of it is really interesting and also I love Sydney and Paul and the idea of seeing them on screen together sounds like yes. a good time but I'll be watching that later at some point. Raisin in the Sun, though, I mean, feels like they really missed an obvious one. Also this year, you know, uh, a number of really cool sounding foreign films that came out. And there were, you know, the some of the greats of, of foreign cinema making movies. So there's a Fellini, La Dolce Vita, which is universally beloved, seemingly. We've got a Kurosawa out this year, Yojimbo. Last year at Marion Bad, which sounds fascinating. And then the film that Sophia Loren was nominated for, Two Women. So we know foreign films don't get a lot of Oscar love, especially until recently. So it's not surprising that they weren't nominated, although Fellini got a Best Director 
nod for Dolce yeah. Vita. And I'll say honorable mention that 101 Dalmatians came yes. out this year, a classic animated film beloved by us all. And I always feel like the Academy has no respect for the animated classics. They should. Animated films are wonderful, just as difficult to make as live action films. If I'm being yeah, honest, so much work hand animating films. Yeah. If I had, well, we read that this is the first animated film that they used Xerox technology to make because yes. the dogs had so many spots. So they were just copying the images of them from cell to cell instead of hand drawing each of them. So that's interesting. But I will say, I feel like I would have been happier if I was spending my time watching 101 Dalmatians instead of Fanny. Other than that, we, we looked at the, you know, the critic list, the AFI list, as we said. West Side Story is the only one that is still on there. Critics aren't all clamoring to say that something got missed this year. So those are the other options that could have been cool. Would have liked to see some variety. That said, what should have won? It's so interesting. We're so early (laughs) in this process of our Mm -hmm. podcast called The Oscars Got It Wrong. And I think it has been a very few times where we have been definitively like, Wrong choice, Oscars. There will be more to come, I promise. Absolutely. I would have loved to see Judgment at Nuremberg win. Again, just to my personal taste, I preferred it. But I really can't argue with West Side Story. Clearly, at the time, a cultural phenomenon. Still a cultural phenomenon. I I can't say that the Oscars got it wrong. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this was a pretty clear-cut choice for them. Judgment at Nuremberg is a great movie. But, I mean, if we're weighing all the factors, West Side Story is West Side Story. It's hugely remembered. It's an incredible musical. And musicals, even though they've sort of lost a bit of their luster at this point, are, you know, iconic, important films, especially at this point. It's, you know, 1961 this point, not this point, this point. And I just think it's great. It's so well made. It's beautiful. It's so well shot. So it's just like, it's a, it's a triumph of filmmaking. Well done, gentlemen. So I'm happy about it. But yeah, I agree. I think more people should know about Judgment of Nuremberg. Maybe if it had won, people would be talking about it. But I think more they'd be talking about how crazy it was that West Side Story did. Yeah. If I'm being honest. (laughs) But can someone just... Get Judgment at Nuremberg streaming somewhere. I don't know who we have to talk to about that, but it should be available. I'll get Mr. Hollywood on the phone. Please do. So this brings us to perhaps the most important part of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Our our check-in on Jake Gyllenhaal and whether or not he should have won an Oscar this year. And if not eligible, which happens to be the case this year. What, how many years pre, pre-Jake are we at this stage? He was born in 1980. Uh, 1980. 19. So we are 19 years pre-Jake. Negative 19. 19 years B-J-E, before the Jake era. And so in that case, let's discuss which of these roles we think Jake Gyllenhaal would have crushed. Thoughts? It's a great question. It's a great question, as always. We know he can sing. I mm-hmm. wouldn't mind seeing him as Tony. I think that would be great for him. Yeah, and I wouldn't actually mind. Well, I don't know. I've I've mixed opinions about this because I feel like they so rarely hit these days when people do film adaptations of musicals. But I wouldn't necessarily mind seeing Jake in a film musical. It could be cool. He would be great at that, of course. I'll also say I don't think he would have been bad in the Paul Newman Hustler role. Mm. Not that. Not that he would have been better than Paul Newman necessarily. Paul Newman is great, but I could see him doing that. He could play tortured. 
Of course. And Paul Newman has a boyish <laughs> charm to him at parts in that film that I think yeah, Jake can he also has a pull boyish charm. Yeah. So wait, what's your choice for what role you want to see him I, in? I'll say the, the first thing that popped into my mind was Tony when I okay. started thinking about this. The afterthought was was uh, crazy. Fast Eddie. Eddie. Fast no, Eddie. Crazy, crazy Eddie is not that character. No, that's not who he is. All right. We got through all the important stuff. Which of these movies, if any, do you think you'll come back to? I think I'm going to be telling people to watch Judgment at Nuremberg. I don't know how soon I'm going to be rewatching it because it is three hours of very heavy movie. But I'm definitely going to be recommending that to people. And then I'm sure at some point in my life I'm rewatching West Side Story. I don't see myself avoiding that. What about you? Well, as I've mentioned on the podcast, I now own Judgment at Nuremberg. So <laughs> you'll be rewatching it weekly. Friday night, Judgment at Nuremberg nights. I I do see myself revisiting that one. I Like I said, I mean, it'll sit with me for a little bit, but I think there's just wonderful complexity in that film and relevance for our times. And I just really appreciated it. Yeah. I don't know if or when I'll revisit West Side Story, but it could certainly happen. I don't know about the other three, though. I don't know that there are things where I'm being like, oh, The Hustler's on? Yeah, I don't know that I would put it on just because I saw that it was on TV. I could yeah. find myself in a situation where, like, someone wanted to watch it, and I don't think I would be like, absolutely not. The other two, I'm probably never going to watch again. Yeah. That's how I stand with these five films. Do we think that we've learned anything on our quest to figure out what a best picture is over the course of this episode? Well, you know, it's very interesting that this is, again, what are we on, episode four? This is the second year we've done where it, the winner was the highest grossing film of the year. But that also means 50% of them have not been the highest grossing. That's true. So maybe we make no conclusions. But we know, right, in, in our sort of more modern era, that's very rarely the case. So I think as we move along, it'll be interesting to see, like, which years that's true for and if there's a shift at a certain point and what that ends up looking like. There's a lot contributing to that. There's the fact that maybe the Academy has started trending towards smaller niche indie type movies. But there's also, I think, the idea that when fewer movies were coming out, people were probably mostly watching the better movies that were available, right? If you only have a few movies to choose from, probably people are going to see those movies because friggin' Guns of, well, I'm sure people liked Guns of Navarone. Well, that was the second highest grossing film. That's what I'm saying. That's what I mean. Like, people were flocking to Guns of Navarone. So, well, at the time, it was an exciting action film. It's just we've we've quickened the pace and how we we cut films. So, yes, you're right. Well, did wasn't like Ordinary People one of the higher grossing movies of that year? I think it was the 11th. I think it finished right outside the top 10, which honestly, by modern standards, is extraordinary. Exactly. This is what I'm saying. So we won't draw any conclusions about that yet, but I think that you're right that over time we will see fewer biggest picture of the years being the best picture of the years. We're still on our learning journey having to consider the cultural relevance versus quality. Obviously, West Side Story, you can't make an argument that it's not most remembered movie of the year. So that is going to play into whether or not we feel like it is the deserving champ. But we've mm-hmm. also more than once at this point had a conversation about might it have been more helpful for another movie to win so that it got more notoriety. I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, for sure. That was also our Rocky Network conversation. Yep. 
this is sort of a similar situation to Rocky Network, actually. Okay. Well, are we seeing any patterns? It's still a little early. <laughs> We've got more angry white guys. There are always angry white guys. You're never far from an angry white guy. The Paul Newman character. He does end up yep. slapping his girlfriend at one point. And you're like, don't hit that he lady, sure Paul. Yeah. But yeah, he's a he's a fairly angry white guy. A, a different, like not the exact version we've seen before of an angry white it's guy. True. But he definitely fits. He fits has that whole mold. speech in that movie where he's like, I'm so great. And I just have to be the greatest. And I, I thirst for greatness. And you're like, okay, dude, calm down. Yeah, maybe relax a little bit. <laughs> I would also say the policeman in West Side Story is an angry white guy. He sucks. Hate that guy. Any final thoughts? I feel like we've been at this one for a while. We have. I think we said it. Don't watch Fanny. Try to watch Judgment at Nuremberg. And if you haven't seen West Side Story, I'm sure someone yeah, else should, has already told you to you watch it. You should probably see it. So what are we talking about next time? We're talking about the 62nd Academy Awards, where they honored the films of 1989, a momentous year in our lives. The year of our birth. Yours and mine. Yay. <laughs> the nominees that year were Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poets Society, Driving Miss Daisy, Field of Dreams, and My Left Foot. So which of these movies, if any, have you seen? I have seen two. I've seen Dead Poets Society and Field of Dreams though it has been many years for both of them and none of the others. How about you? I have seen only Dead Poet Society and also many years. I think, again, I feel like we watched that in high school. I feel like that's a movie. You I, I mean, I feel like I watched Field of Dreams in school, but it must not have been a class that we shared. Yeah, that could be. You were taking that baseball yeah. class, I imagine. <laughs> I had that baseball extracurricular I was always running off to. But yeah, so I'm really excited for this year because I know there's a lot of controversy. Mm -hmm. There are also a lot of great films that were not nominated that we're going to be talking about it. There's just so much to discuss. So ready for that. Come back in two weeks. In the meantime, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, or just opinions about films that you desperately want to share with us, you can reach us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. And on Twitter and Letterboxd at Oscars Wrong Pod. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at six o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>